Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All that is from God, who will reconcile us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Over the past uh, few weeks, we've been talking about um, the rudiments of uh, reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation we've been giving. This, this passage here talks about that, this message of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation. Both of those terms are used. I want to focus this morning on um, this idea of being ministers of reconciliation. I want to focus on the word ministers. Ministry, ministers. Um, the whole family of words comes from, from the word that um, we get servant from in the Bible, servanthood. Deacon is the word in, in, the, in the Greek, same language, I mean, same word, just a different, you know, if we talk about church deacon, it's a different role, more of a specialized servant, but it means servant, basically. Um, and so what does it mean to be servants of reconciliation or people who um, minister that, who, who try to make that happen, try to effect reconciliation? So this morning I want to kind of move from the idea of just looking at the ideas involved, the theology of this you know, biblical narrative of reconciliation that that provides solutions to the various forms of alienation that sin in God's original creation, human sin, sort of warped and distorted and um, brought alienation where there was harmony. And God, through Christ, is seeking to reconcile all these things back to the way He intended them to be. And we have a role in that because while it, He's the one who launches this reconciliation, it would not happen no matter how, many, how much you know, goodwill you put into it or how much effort, how many, you know, how many things were on your Google calendar, um, you know, how many hours you spent on it and how much planning you did. None of that would matter a hill of beans were it not for God doing what he did in Christ. But yet he calls us to a ministry to be ministers of this reconciliation. I don't know if you had this about sixth grade or seventh grade, I can't really remember. We always would have, you know, it's like physical science before you had physics in high school. And they would bring out this, this little set of steel balls hanging on uh, uh, kind of V-shaped strings. Um, we called it Newton's Pendulum. I don't know what, you, what it was called where you were. You probably, they were, everybody had one in their, in their bedroom in the 70s. They had no idea about Isaac Newton, didn't know who he was, but that was cool. Um, and I don't remember all the things, uh, conservation of energy and some of the, I don't remember all the, the lessons. I probably wasn't paying attention, honestly, probably flirting with a 12-year-old, at, at, you know, or what, what that meant to me then. But anyway, I do remember kinetic and potential energy. They made a big deal out of that, right? Potential energy is energy that's like poised and ready to happen, for lack of a better way of putting it. This is coming out of Monty's memory. Kinetic energy is energy associated with motion. 
right? So if you think about a roller coaster, we rode some roller coasters this week. Right when it's at the top, it's potential energy. When it starts going down, you've got kinetic energy. It's the energy of motion and movement. What I want to talk about in this lesson is how do we move from being a church of potential energy, if you will, to a church of kinetic energy, all right? I'm just holding that steel ball back. We've let it go, and it's moving, and it's going to create other motion on the other end, and it's going to keep going. How do we move from a church of potential energy to a church of kinetic energy? How do we move from just learning about something to actually living it, right? As I put in the email, from pondering it in all of its beauty, what a beautiful story, what a beautiful idea of reconciliation. If everything could just be brought back uh, to, to the hub that is, that is God in Christ. Think of all the things that would be just beautiful and wonderful. The Bible uses the word shalom to talk about that. That would be restored. And yet it's just an idea if we don't enact it. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. As I said in the email to you, the little primer email that was sent out a few days ago on Thursday, I think I sent it. This is, this is to, intended to be an interactive session today. So I hope that you worked through some of those questions and passages, especially 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. But that's what we want to talk about uh, today. So, um, focus with me now on verse 17. In particular, the fact that there is this command, this imperative to behold certain things, or to see something that's happened, or to look, as the NRSV puts it here. If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Everything old has passed away. He could have just said, new things have come, but he doesn't. There's an imperative there. We are commanded to look at it. We're, we're commanded to perceive something, to behold, your version may say, or see, colon, new things are coming into being. There's a new reality that was launched with the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that impacts all creation. And, you know, Christians can be as cynical as anybody else. We can be as realistic, that's the optimistic word for <laughs> cynicism sometimes. I mean, we, we, we're called to be realistic too, to face things, you know, uh, maturely and uh, in, in reality. But if you're talking about a way of life and a narrative and a hope that, that began with a resurrection from the dead... Aren't we, by definition, already redefining reality? You can't act like, well, we just, that's normal, everything's like it was. No, you said you believed in a resurrected body, somebody who was dead as a doornail who's now alive. So what's real and what's not real, that, that's, all bets are off. And so he's telling us to, to live out of that, to see that a new order has dawned. It's been launched. It's underway because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he wants us to stare at that, to really get it. He says, look, behold, see, new things are coming into being. So my first question to you all, if you remember, was, was this. How, how is that significant? Just this idea, I don't want to run right over that. that that's the command word in the whole paragraph. Um, what's the significance of Paul telling us to look at it, behold it, or see the newness of everything. We got mic runners? Okay. Stephen and Daniel, all right. So wait on the, uh, 
Wait on the mic if you could so that people watching at home can, uh, can understand both sides of the conversation. What do you have on this? You see any significance in this? Okay, got Nick over here. To the point you just made about cynicism and realism, I tend toward the cynical a little bit more. I tend to be a little more cynical, pessimistic, um, that sort of thing. But it's easy to see. I mean, we see the brokenness. And like you said, we're, we're called to see how the world really is. We're called to see our own sin. We're called to see that things are run down and not working. And so, and that, that stuff is obvious. Like, that stuff jumps out at us every day, and we live it every single day. And so this call to look and see that things are new, that there are new things out there, I think is, is to try to pull us away from the sorts of obvious things that just inundate us and surround us every day and really use our, our minds, our, our reborn, our new minds to, to see that there are better things, that there are new things coming in opposition to that, to the, to the broken things that we are inundated with. Yeah, got Greg back here and then John. Uh, okay, Laura and then John. Laura's going to talk. Sweet. <laughs> Every time I'm a mic runner, I don't know if y'all ever notice, I'm like look, giving her eyes and going like, here's the mic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think Greg is next, and then we'll come over here. Laura and then John. I, well, to kind of steal a term that you've used, it's not, uh, you're not taking Jesus and putting him in your back pocket. I mean, you've got something new. You need to look at things in a new way. Yep. It's, you can't go on being what you were. Yeah. You have to change your outlook and kind of take notice of other things. Yeah, I love that. Don't, don't just put, look at Jesus as somebody you can put in your back pocket and then keep going on with your normal life, your normal story, your normal values. You're good because you got your own personal Jesus, right? Remember that song? Um, Laura and then John. It's supposed to change everything. It's supposed to revolutionize the way we look at the world and the way we behave. That's what today's about, behavior, kinetic, movement. Laura. Um, I think we can underestimate the enemy's like power in our lives and that he doesn't want us to see new because then we live in our shame or we see the world, like Nick said, very cynically. But like newness is the gospel. So when we like let that percolate, it does change like everything. And right. it can change kind of our view of the world that's lost and how we want to like just proclaim it, yeah. you know. Great, excellent. John? <laughs> A lot of people say it said what I was going to say, but then the only thing I would add is then because there is this newness, we need to scrub the old. We need to be aware of that and kind of scrub and, and get rid of the old. Right. 100%. Yeah, 100%. You know, uh, in Ephesians where Paul says, learn Christ. So there is this process of growth. This isn't something that just instantly happens, but we got to at least have the right goal in mind. Like, there, there's a new reality. Okay, it takes take me a while. I get up, all the news, everything goes the other direction. You know, the shame, whatever it is, the failure. But we have to kind of get up and start putting one foot in front of the other. I mean, in that direction. So I think that's that scrubbing and putting, you know, Colossians talks about, put, and, and Ephesians talk about putting on a different kind of clothing. We're a different self, so we put on different clothing each day. Good stuff. All right, so let's start applying this now. One other question, though, pr preliminarily, I think, um, is, is, if, is if we focus on the fact that God gave us these things, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us. to. So he launches it. Without his power, it's all, it is futile. We should be cynical. Um, we're, we're just, you know, 
got our heads in the sand or something if we don't recognize that God is the one who drives it. But he did give us this. He gave us a ministry of reconciliation and he entrusted, your version may say committed, the message of reconciliation to us. So I want you to focus on the words entrusted or committed or God-given and, and consider this question. What are the implications of that? Of the fact that God has given this. I didn't give it to you. Rick didn't give it to you. Greg didn't give it to you. God Almighty gave us this. God Almighty, the one that spoke the creation into existence, raised Jesus from the dead, has entrusted something to us. He's committed to us a ministry or message of reconciliation. Any implications from that, practically, Linda? Well, it harkens back to the garden where God entrusted us to take care of the world, basically, and, and that should still be happening. You know, it's a, I'm, I'm a tree hugger from way, way back, and, and that's what, how I in, interpret it, is to, to be an active person, even if it's just one person doing something, still it's, you know, people see you doing it. I've, I've had other people say to me in different <coughs> things I've done, oh, I never would have thought of doing that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. So just to be a light and, and show that, you know, you're, you're caring for the world, both the people and the things in it. All right. Good. Thank you. Greg? The idea of, of being given something or entrusted with something makes me think of the parable of the talents. Mm-hmm. You know, something was given, something was expected. Right. And so whenever we're given something by God, be it a, a talent or a challenge or a responsibility, whatever it is, there's something he expects us yeah. to do with it. Right. Great. And do you, I don't know if you remember the end of how the parable of the talents goes. If we bury our talents, is that good? Good end? No, it's, it's a horrific. So th- this, is, this should be, I'm, what I'm getting at here is this is, should be a weight of responsibility and opportunity. If you look at the garden and look at the new creation described in Revelation 21-22, I mean, that story gets me really pumped up. A lot more than what I kind of had in my earlier Christian life of just, basically it's a lot of rules and God's a gigantic cop in the sky. I'm not blaming this on anybody. This is my own interpretation. Who's looking to make sure you can just tough it out on this kind of test stage called earth. Right? And then, then you won't go to hell. Heaven wasn't that appealing to me, honestly. I kind of liked the fun things I did in the world, like you know, football, baseball, hunting, fishing, hiking, uh, cutting ochre in the garden. You know, I liked, I liked stuff. But I didn't want to go to hell, so I could maybe be just up there and there'd be clouds and harp music and you know, very medieval stuff. Not very, very biblical, honestly. Very medieval Catholicism stuff is where that came from. Um, anyway, the story of like everything being remade and the world purged of the curse and being wonderful again gets me pumped up. Because like, it's not just obligation, it's opportunity. But I don't want to miss that either, right? All right, let's, uh, yeah, yeah, Steve. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say hey. really quickly, along with um, the responsibility, I don't think God gives us anything that we can't handle or at least he gives us the grace to accomplish it if if he's expecting us to do it he will be there with us to help us that's right 
That's great. I tie that with, back to Linda's point. Like, it, it may feel small. Like, what can I do against all this? But when did God ever say we were supposed to trade places with him? We, nothing you do is significant on your own. But if God is the one who gave us the ministry, God is the one accomplishing it, then a little thing can become something big. You know, that, that goes beyond your own lifetime even. Plant sequoias. Remember? Um, wasn't that? Did you, you quote that Wendell Berry line from that poem? Um, somebody did here. All right. Um, next, let's look at the last uh, couple of verses here from 2 Corinthians 5. Daniel, would you read that for us? Just a highlighted part. It's the second half of verse 20 and then verse 21. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so this is talking about the part of reconciliation that we probably, our minds go to usually most or first. Maybe they don't ever leave that and it just stays there, but it is extremely important. I would argue the most, the most central because everything else flows out of this. Human sin is what messed up everything. And fixing human sin, the relationship between God and the sinner, right? God and each of us individually is kind of where it starts. Uh, what we might call vertical uh, reconciliation, divine human reconciliation. So that's our next question. We're going to now start applying this. Hopefully I want, you'll get practical. I want this to be functional and practical and lived, kinetic, not just potential, not just ideas. Uh, I guess we're talking, we, all we can do in here is do ideas, but ideas about what to do is the point of this lesson. What are some concrete behaviors or habits that you and I can adopt in order to seek vertical reconciliation between God and sinners? Daniel. This may be too rudimentary, even for where you're going, but it, we have to know people. I think, particularly in the like American American religious South, like everything is so insular. Like we we have our, you know, our work and our, you know, gym relationships and our kids, you know, ball teams or school friends, mm -hmm. and then we have our church, and we like keep them so uber siloed. That I, I think part of the issue is we don't we don't know people like I, I mean I've heard that we've we've talked about that recently some of the guys got together for dinner like we don't know people mm -hmm. so it's really hard to serve people if you don't know people like yeah. what you end up doing instead is I'm gonna donate to a you know program or society or something and here's a little bit of money or I'm gonna go pick up trash and see now I'm involved in my community but you're not like because mm -hmm. you don't have a relationship with a human so. I think the first step to this vertical reconciliation is somehow having a relationship with somebody who is in need. Mm -hmm. I agree. And this is anecdotal on my part, I, you know, just my own experience. I, I really think that has gotten worse. Like when I look back at my mom and dad's generation, they, they like knew everybody. My dad never met a stranger, talked to anybody. I have a feeling Greg Beard's the same way, just, just knowing him. You know, just the ability to like be human and like talk to people. And I, I, I've, I've taught, you know, um, a lot of years. I'm not teaching right now, but at college courses. And I've kind of noticed this myself in classes. Like, the ability of, of you know, a, a professor to a student, it's a, it's a random, you're strangers at the beginning of the class. But over the course of the semester, you talk a few times. You're, you know, they start getting your humor a little bit, assuming you're funny on purpose. Um, I'm always funny accidentally, but, which is great for other people, not me. But at the end... At the end, you typically kind of start knowing a few people, and I've, I just noticed, I've told Cherie over time that over the years, last 15, 18, 20 years, that they don't, there's so many students who seem almost afraid of you. 
I don't mean because you, you can grade them. I just mean like personally, like, can I maybe ask if, uh, you know, I'm not, and it's like, why, that was always a, a shy student or two, and that's fine. You know, and you, you go to them more because they, they need you to come to them more. But it seems like that was like generalizing more. And I've actually read about research on that. So we are becoming, I think, more and more insular, more and more inside little silos. And the norm, if we're not careful, of our culture, I don't know if I'm right about it trending that way with younger and younger people, I don't know, is just the sort of the norm becomes, I'm an isolated thing with a shell around me, and how can you minister anything to anyone if there's no connection? And, and the, the ironic thing is, a lot of surveys also say that people are craving community. They crave community. Like, we're wired for that, but we don't know how to do it. So we end up being lonely with no mechanisms to reach outside the loneliness. The church ought to be able to, we ought to work on that. And we all have temperaments and all that, I get that. And God's going to start with us where we are. He's patient with us. But we ought to work on things that the, God, that the gospel calls us to. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, every single Christian is called to a ministry of reconciliation. It may look different for each one of us in different ways, but I think that's a, a hugely important point Daniel makes. Any other thoughts on vertical reconciliation? And by vertical, I'm just talking about humans to God. How do we help people connect to God who don't know him yet? We used to call this personal evangelism. You can use that term now still if you want. This might also be too simplistic, but you're asking for concrete. So, yeah. um we recently had an experience where um, we had, you know, just people over for dinner. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said, this is, it seems like a no-brainer, but it's, it's a little bit hard sometimes to get somebody who's maybe not your really close friend to say, hey, would you guys like to come over for dinner? Because I think people are like, oh, sit around a table for two mm-hmm. hours and talk about, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, um, but Daniel and I were commenting to each other like, you know, it's just amazing how after a little bit, everybody kind of like relaxes, and then you do start to build a relationship. So, you know, in, in light of this, and then from, you know, thinking recently, I've decided, okay, before the year is out, and this is a very low bar, but before the year is out, I am going to have somebody from my neighborhood, somebody who's not a Christian that I know, over for dinner. And that's, I'm just going to start there. Right. Because... I think through the course of a dinner with with us, they would figure out that we are, you know, that we are believers. And then at some point, you know, there might be some door that's opened up. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying have them over dinner and like lay out a bunch of religious tracts for them, but I'm just going to try to become. I know. (laughs) I don't know why no one wants to come. (laughs) Yours would have creme fraiche on it or something. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. But, I mean, yeah, that's just, that's like, one concrete yeah. thing. It's like, I know how to cook. We have a table. I can, you know, call somebody mm-hmm. up, even though it might be a little intimidating on one end or the other. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing I can do. Right. Other ideas? Greg? Yeah, maybe backing up just half a step. We mm-hmm. talk about this reconciliation between God and sinners. The first sinner we need to be worried about is ourselves. Amen. And getting that reconciliation done and as far as concrete behaviors and habits is getting some consistency in our service to God and then moving out from that into our family mm-hmm. and getting some consistency there so that when we do have an opportunity or we you know, invite somebody over for dinner, what they see is what they need to see mm-hmm. to know, you know what, what it is that God expects 
so the reconciliation can take place. Sure. Because if we're putting out mixed signals, and you know, one day we're one thing and the next day we're something else, uh, we're going to have a hard time reconciling anybody to God. Yeah. Yep. Good point, Greg. Um, just a week ago Saturday, when our small group went out for dinner, before when we said grace, you all held hands. And a lot of people saw that. And during dinner, we were kind of laughing, having a good time. And it kind of, a, I guess the good image is it's not, we're all, we're not stern and very, you know, sad about it. We're just normal people, you know, out hanging out with friends. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes with it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we can model it. I think you're hearing both of those comments. Model it as much as, you know, um, Preach, gospel, preach the gospel. What is it? Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Um, that old thing. All right. Great, great stuff. And remember, we're one body, many members. So you don't, you know, you may not be able to do what Randy Fox is, is going to do. She's got a skill set. that You may have another skill set that she doesn't have and vice versa. Just to, not to, you know, obviously we all, we all have different things. And so it might be that just you're befriending somebody. You have a common interest, whatever it is, and you develop a relationship and then you know, you might, somebody else might, you know, use that to, to move down a different direction than you could have or felt as comfortable with. But let's use what God has given us, at least that, and let's also not assume that we have 100% knowledge of what our, our wheelhouse and our talents are. I think that's a mistake sometimes, too. That's not one of my gifts, and it's a 22-year-old saying it. Maybe you don't know your gifts yet. Anybody here grown to be able to do things that they once never would have thought of and now they do them a lot. I feel like everybody in this room that's true of on some level. Your jobs call you to do that and you're willing to do it. Well, that's money's involved. Well, more's involved here than money. The stakes are a little higher than money in your career. So we can do a lot of things if we're open to God's transforming us. I think that's the biggest thing. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. You know, that's, growth is uncomfortable. Um, I mean, not to be cliche about it, but the cross was uncomfortable, right? And we're supposed to, you know, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ and all that. So, all right. Um, so that's, that's kind of us talking about some concrete ideas on vertical reconciliation. If we move it to horizontal, that is human to human, and you can apply this to individual humans, to individual humans. You meet, meet two people who are estranged, and they've been that way for 25 years. There's, there's grudge holding. There's bitterness. You know, it's just so so toxic, and it's causing them pain, as these things usually do. You can stuff it and run from it, but it usually is, you know, below the surface. Bitterness in Hebrews is called a root. There's a botanical metaphor for a reason. It spreads its tendrils everywhere and contaminates all sorts of things. What if you're a person who knows the answer to that, and you're close to one of those two people, or both of them? Maybe they're even in a church. Maybe they're in this church. How can we work to effect reconciliation between those two alienate individuals, or if we're talking about social, you know, social, political stuff as well, racism, you know, ethnic groups who are crossways, um, warring political factions. Sound familiar? We're just going to play along into that? Like whatever Fox and CNN tell us, we'll just do that. We'll let the cross be co-opted by that. Ridiculous, honestly. We have something better than that, that existed before that, and after those go away, and they will, it'll all be rearranged 20 years from now, and we'll go, remember when Christians thought they had to do this or say that? I, if you're studying history a little bit, you see this happened like 14 times, even in our 200-year, some, you know, some odd year history. 
So we got to be a, a, something different from that that's about Jesus and the cross and, and creation and new creation and not be co-opted by these other battles and, and, and storylines, these other narratives. Humans are at odds too because of sin. Individuals and human groups, people groups. What's our role in that? Do we just go, ah, that's not, I just do church. You know, I don't think that's what this is talking about. This is talking about he, the whole world. Um, he actually says all things when he's talking about reconciliation. Several different texts Paul does. Greg? I was thinking about this after you sent your email out. And, you know, I got to thinking about reconciliation. It's been going on since, you know, right after the garden. But mm -hmm. it kicked into high, you know, high gear when Jesus came. And in his Sermon on the Mount, you know, right at the very beginning, the Beatitudes, one of the things he told us was to, you know, to be peacemakers. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right. And then Paul in, in Romans 12 said, you know, as, as much as it depends on us that we're to be at peace. And, you know, that is not always easy to do. You're driving along, somebody cuts you off or, you know, whatever. Um, I've gotten better at it, you know, than, than I used to be. <laughs> of course, I don't live in California anymore, so. It's but, easier uh, <laughs> when you have an engine under your hood that doesn't have 29 cylinders like your car. Yeah, so. You have a 1.4, um, you know. You know, but we need to be the voice of reason. We need to be the one with the soothing word. We need to be the one that, you know, takes a deep breath. Right. Um, doesn't fly off the handle and that sort of thing. And that can go a long way yeah. into not starting a conflict, number one, and then to, you know, pushing down, you know, a conflict that maybe has already st mm -hmm. started. And it's got to be something that is um, purposeful, you mm -hmm. know, something that we have to think about doing and plan on doing. And that means getting a hold of ourselves, getting a hold of our emotions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, adding on to our fuse mm -hmm. so it doesn't mm -hmm. burn, you know, yeah. out as fast or mm -hmm. as quickly. Okay, yeah, great. Greg and then Linda. probably mentioned this before, but I've had the opportunity in a lot of jobs to work with people from all over the world. And I see it as a blessing because you get to understand them. You know, okay, they're, what's their reality? And it's, so you're not, I mean, that's the best way to do a relationship. You, okay, if you can better understand where they're coming from, mm -hmm. whether they're Christian, non-Christian, Islam, doesn't matter. And it, it just opens a lot of doors and you're less, because he wasn't, Christ didn't, come to, you know, cause confrontation or to be a revolution. It was more, he was sympathetic understanding, trying to work with people. And that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, I was a witness at work of a person getting really, really angry at another person and yelling at them. And the person they were yelling at told him, I said, you, you don't have to yell at me. That's not, you know, and the guy just got really mad and stomped off. And I, I walked up to the person that had been yelled at and I said, you know, you're, you're right, he shouldn't have talked to you like that. You should talk to your supervisor. And he said, well, my supervisor probably sent him up here. I says, yeah, but he didn't send him up here to yell at you. Mm -hmm. So I went to the supervisor and told him, I says, you know, this, this person seems to have some anger issues mm -hmm. that maybe you could talk to him <coughs> and, and help soothe that, smooth that out a little bit because you really ought not be yelling at people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what you mean about being involved, but, you know, instead yeah. of getting in the guy's face and telling them to stop yelling, that's not right, you know, as I, I went to, you know, the person that I knew would, would be able to handle it and is responsible for handling it, mm 
because the guy didn't seem like he was willing to say anything himself. And I went back to that guy and told him that I had said something, so he didn't get like blindsided. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's what you're talking about, but that's, that's sure. something like I, I mean, do. That, that's one of the things. That's, that's great, but there's all sorts of things. I mean, this is about as big as, you know, the world. I mean, obviously, but yeah, that's good. Nikki? Um, I think something to consider, too, is just that it's going to take a long time to actually, it's not just a simple conversation sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have years and sometimes ancestors of, ancestry history of hurt, mm-hmm. and it takes time to heal from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these human relationships are going to take a lot of effort mm-hmm. on our part to listen and to sometimes just sit with these people and right. understand their story in order to build that relationship. Right. Sometimes it's not just a simple conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a relationship building process. Right. That's great. And I'll, I'll uh, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Sorry, just one, one last no, no. thing. I, I think part of the ministry and the message has to, has to be the motivation for it. And, you know, there, and you've pointed out before, there are many, many movements to reconcile racial groups or ethnic groups or, you know, families or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. And spouses, yeah. spouses, whatever. And a lot of times they, they fall short because there's no, because the motivation dies out because it's a power play. Honestly, mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. of the time it's, mm-hmm. it's, let's reconcile so that we can get the power back and, and then you get the power and then you just do the same thing over and over and over again. And, and so bringing back the, the, the motivation, the sort of the underlying reason for it into all of the interactions that people have called out with, you know, coworkers or, or racial groups or, or, you know, things like that, that we're, we're reconciling this because the world is broken because mm-hmm. God has fixed it and mm-hmm. God has, called us to be in a relationship with him like that like that we have to have that motivation or every every effort we take will eventually fall short of any level of success that's great yep yeah it's not just we're not just talking about activism right we're talking about something god is doing that he's called to us and i think sometimes because of the political stuff we're in we're either like i don't want to be an activist like some liberal agitator even though you start looking at some of the things people are protesting, it's like very biblical. It's like justice and stuff. Anti-racism. The Bible does not condone racism at all. Every tribe, tongue, people, nation, that's where we're headed. <laughs> Better get used to it now and, and love it now and see the beauty in it now if you've got problems with that. But on the other hand, we can go to this extreme of like, it's just activism. It's like, it's like the ethics of Jesus with the head cut off. It's like it's on rigor mortis you know, or something. It's still... I don't know if that's the right term. No, it's a, it's a snake that you cut the head off and it's still jerking, it can still bites you for 20 minutes or whatever it is. What is it, Rick? How many minutes? I don't know. Um, 17 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, and it's, so it's like it's on fumes. And I think a lot of, in, in our present political culture, a lot of the good causes tend to be, a lot of the social uh, causes that look kind of biblical when you read about the, the prophets, especially where injustice is one of the big three sins of the, of the prophetic period. Um, social injustice. Isaiah, in Isaiah 1, we're told to actually you know, embrace the cause of the widow and orphan and so on. Not just don't do it ourselves, but embrace the cause. Be their, their advocate. I mean, that sounds like a lot of people that would you call political liberals. That means you have to agree with everything you're saying. So you got this false choice of sometimes very secular 
maybe even anti-religious with the ethics that look like the Bible in some ways. In some ways, many ways. And over here you got Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I just do church. And, and the ethic part that goes out into the other 98% of your life, when you could be a minister of reconciliation, that's seen as a political thing. That's not religious. Very religious. So how do you keep the Christ part but get the good ethics, the part that are biblical? I think that's what the church ought to be modeling. I think a lot of those activists got their stuff from Christ. We've just forgotten historically where that came from. If you go back and look at the anti-slavery movement and anti-child labor thing, most of this came out of evangelical Christians at some level, somewhere back, way, way back when. Anyway, I'm going too far down that, that rabbit hole, but Daniel, and then we'll move to our last questions. Uh, very quickly, I, you know, I think trying to make this concrete, I mean, I, just in, there's, there's a lot of ways we could go, and, and, you know, politics is one that always comes up, but in, in looking around our church, I don't, I mean, I know that occasionally folks are, you know, have strong views on politics, but I actually think our church does a pretty good job of being like, eh, you know. Yeah, that's not where it's at. It, it's, it, I, I just don't get the sense, you know, like, that we've got too many hyper-political folks here that that's where we're going to have our biggest effect, even though in the world it feels like that, but I actually think that's a really small sliver too. I think it's, you've got two, two big poles. When you t talk about things that, like, where we can really exert a big effect, I, I see three potential areas, um, and maybe this is just where I'm living right now, but, it, you know, when you think about things that people think about and struggle with and wrestle with, you see, you know, marriage relationships or, you know, uh, you know, relationships between you know, people who are dating or married, I and mean, that's just so ripe, right? It's just, it's so common and it's so ripe. I see opportunity in, you know, the way that we raise our kids. Um, you know, obviously, we're kind of in the throes of that phase right now, but man, that is a common plight. You know, you're sitting at a, you know, school discussion or a ball field or a, you know, ballet recital, and my goodness, you, you, you see it, you feel it. And then I think the other big area, and, you know, I've, I've thought about John Duros, you know, finance, you know, like just willing to sit down with somebody who clearly doesn't know what they're doing and like just offer counsel, yeah. you know, from a biblical perspective out, that is so rare and unique. Like, so, I mean, you, if you talk about the, and everybody has to deal with those things mm -hmm. or many, many, many people have to deal with a lot of those things. So like being willing to connect in those specific areas, I think are one way that we as a church, if we committed to doing some of that, that, that would be very concrete, actionable yeah. things. Excellent. Excellent. Appreciate those. All right, um, let's read a couple more passages because we're going to now uh, turn to address the reconciliation of human beings to the material creation. All right, the ground, to use the language of you know, the idioms of Genesis. Remember Adam, Adam, and Adamah? Adam was of the earth, and that, that allusion in Genesis, the, the, the sort of uh, just the, the phonetic um, resonance between Adam and Adamah, Adam, Adamah is there, and then it's ruined in chapter 3 after the sin, where the ground is cursed. The ground used to bring forth all these wonderful things with human horticulture. That's how God designed it. Um, now, that's messed up. And it's been messed up on some level ever since then. Um, but it's the very stuff of humanity's nature. Adam, Adamah. He is the groundling. He is the ground creature. Um, Hebrew language scholars translate it all kinds of ways like that instead of just saying Adam. They're trying to get you to see that because you can't see that in English, right? Adam and ground don't sound anything alike. Um, you would not have not been able to see that if you were a Hebrew uh, reading the Torah. 
But now it's all been cursed because of human sin, according to Genesis 3.17. And apparently that curse continues because we have passages like Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 22 of Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await so we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So something about creation's problems, its groaning, its corruptibility, is connected to human sin, unredeemed humans. And when our bodies get redeemed, something will happen to creation. There's a lot of mystery in that passage, but it's on a really just superficial, obvious level saying that. I don't think there's any way to read it without it saying there's some connection. Creation's sort of going, hurry, get your act together. And, and we're, it's already started, and it's, gonna, it's like childbirth. You know, there's pains because something good is coming. Um, it's a harvest. There's first fruits, but the full harvest is coming. But creation, is t- it's, its destiny is tied in with ours. As Genesis 1 and 2 said, in Psalm 8 and other places. So we get, that's going on still. Colossians, one of the several places where Paul talks about reconciling or reconciliation, says that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, not just individual sinners, but all things whether on earth or in heaven. So if we go back and look at ourselves and our role in the garden to to cultivate it and to protect it or guard it, to keep it, and how that gets messed up and the ground is cursed, and it's still cursed according to Romans 8 in some ways, but the curse is going to be no longer, according to Revelation 22.5, in the new heavens, new earth, and in the interim, already, the reconciliation is happening. It's hard not to see us as having some relation to the rest of material creation. I wouldn't say that's the number one emphasis in the Bible. The number one emphasis is getting us right with God because that's the heart of the matter. But what were we, when we were right with God back in the garden, what were we doing? A lot of it had to do with that kind of stuff. So I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's been a blind spot. Um, and again, it's politicized, right? So you tell me, are you liberal or conservative if you care about the creation? Yes. Okay. What's the story, though? <laughs> Who is most likely statistically to oppose ecology initiatives and environment? The word environmental? You say the word environmental. Let's be real. That's liberal, which is a strange, that's going to look really strange 100 years from now. We all live on Earth. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of stereotypes out there, too. Hunters and fi- trout, people in Trout Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited care as much about the environment as anybody I've ever known in my life. I mean, they're like almost wacko in terms of tr- working about, um, I say this from personal experience, because I used to be a member of Trout Unlimited. They, they big time, we want, because they want the brook trout fishery to be you know, perfect. So don't plant Christmas trees up there and have silt and you kill the eggs, blah, 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 blah. Um, they sound like tree huggers. So we got all kinds of stereotypes anyway about that. Let's get rid of all that and just think Bible out and now talk concretely, practically. This is ginormous, right? I mean, talk about where do you start? Um, practically speaking, how might we act as ministers of reconciliation in the arena of creation care? I'll just use that term. Many others have used it. Randy, you have any thoughts on this? Uh, I'll get Randy and then we'll get Greg. 
And then, and then, oh, sorry, did you have that already? That's okay, go ahead. I'm blind, you have to yell at me. <laughs> go ahead, Tanya, if you, have you been holding your mic for a while? Tanya wants you, she defers to you. Okay, so you've done a really good job of laying out how all these things are connected, and I know we have to divide them up in order to be able to like talk about this versus that, you know, different types of reconciliation, but we're crazy if we think that like, well, on Monday, I'm going to reconcile people to God. And then, you know, three weeks from now, we'll work on human to human. And then maybe in March, I'll think about reconciling the creation. Even it's though that's kind of how I'm going to be preaching. Well, <laughs> and I realize no, that like we're finite. Right. And so we have to, you know, we have to make categories. That's how our, our brains work. But we're crazy if we think that we can somehow parse out reconciliation. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, we're, we're all, as you've, as you've mentioned several times, we're all made of the same stuff that God made the earth. He uses over and over and over in the scriptures his creation not only to teach us things, but to, to really to form us. You know, you think about um, Moses. He sends him out for 40 years to tend animals, to apparently work on this really extended object lesson. Mm -hmm. I mean... If you were to categorize how many of Jesus' teachings in the parables and elsewhere have some sort of connection to gardening or horticulture or anything else, I mean, it's, almost, it's probably close to 90%. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, to our own peril, ignore the very things that God apparently put here to help form us. Um, and, you know, you think about the, the evils of feudalism or caste systems or slavery and, and Jim Crow here in the United States. One of the biggest evils is disallowing people to care for their own land. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, Nikki mentioned, like, generations and generations of people are negatively affected because they cannot produce the work of their hands. Mm -hmm. So God obviously cares, you know, about that. I mean, he apparently put it here for our flourishing, but also for our correction and for our, you know, our own learning. Um, I was actually just reading a story recently. Ever since you sent your email, like everything I've been reading is like, oh, I could say that and I could say this. And I'm like, okay, how about I just not? But um, I was reading something recently about, sorry, about a, um, a, a couple who back years and years ago bought some land that was adjoining theirs. They had like a little small acreage and they, you know, wanted to buy the land that was adjoining and they were able to pick it up cheap because some multinational builder had come in and like bulldozed a bunch of stuff on hillsides and then after there was a dip in the economy and the land didn't turn out to be, you know, useful for the track homes they were going to put in, basically just kind of had to like sell it. And, you know, so they got it for cheap, mm -hmm. but one of the comments that he made was, you know, there were some hillsides in it, and he said, you know, there's like thousands of years of topsoil that's, that's gone. It'll take, it'll take many, many, many generations for that to even approach where it was before they came. But in its restoring, we're restoring ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, that as the land heals, we, we see that it, it takes generations sometimes to heal and to reconcile things. And, you know, I wonder, we, we think, I think of myself sometimes as so smart, but maybe... <clears throat> Maybe actually getting your hands in the proverbial dirt first is a good lesson for what it takes, for what God's long redemptive plan really is. Good. Appreciate that. Um, Greg, and I'm sorry, Tanya next. Tanya's had the microphone for what? 
It's okay. 25 minutes or something? <laughs> and, then, and then we'll get Greg. This For visitors, kind of there's other people here named things besides Greg. <laughs> all, all Greg today and Tanya. Um, this is sort of um, a comment on all th of the first three questions. Okay. Um, just to remember, be simple, and um, we plant the seeds of the Word of God, and we water them, or other people water them. Sometimes we water them, and then God makes them grow. Right. And that happened with me in college as a college student. I didn't wasn't raised with the Bible at mm -hmm. all, and I like to remind brothers and sisters who were raised in the church that we just need to ask because... I was um, studying with some friends in a, from a lab, advanced physiology, at, and um, one of the girls said they were going to Bible study, and I said, oh, really? Um, can I come? And they were like, wow, we didn't think you'd be interested. Mm -hmm. And later they apologized because they thought I would never be open because I was in a sorority and I talked about parties and stuff like that, and they just dismissed that I would ever be open to coming. But the first time I went, I heard the word of God and what sin was and completely turned around and quit doing all those things and never looked back. I didn't quit coming. And so I learned the Bible and nine months later I was baptized. And we have to remember that we can't pick and choose who's open. Mm -hmm. We just have to ask. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that, Tanya. And I think that applies to all of these areas in a way that the whole, just through the planting and the watering. And remember, God is doing something that's cosmic. Like, it's mind-blowingly huge and powerful. And he just asks, it's, what a vote of confidence that he says, I want you to come along in this and do a little, plant a seed, you know, and watch, it, watch what I can do, you know. That's great. Who else? Do, oh, yeah, Greg. And then Greg. Any other Gregs? Want to talk? <laughs> The spirit of reclamation, would that be summarized in the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, that's sort of a generic way the Lord gave us a long time ago. Yeah, right. If you, were, if you were estranged from God, would you want to be reconciled? Yes, I would, if I knew the consequences. If I was in some, you know, marriage on the brink, would I want somebody to step in and like give me some power that would make it whole again? Yes. If I'm, if I'm a slave in 1867 during Reconstruction and they're talking about 40 acres and a mule because they recognize in an agricultural world that you can't live if you don't have land when the world was 90% agricultural or something like that, you know, pre-industrialization in America anyway. And, and then, then, then they, the, 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 a lot of Southerns, Southerners come along and nuke that so you don't get any land. <laughs> yeah, I would want somebody to help me out with that. You know, so, yeah, if we think about what we would want, that's a great point, Greg. I, I think it does apply to every one of these. And then, Greg, and we're going to uh, wrap it up. Hopefully this isn't too far, though. A while back you said something about creation care, and I sent you an email talking about how some people take convenience over creation care. Yeah. Like they yeah. line up at the store to buy coffee in their car instead of doing it themselves. It's you got to... You have to think a little bit. You can't just think the easy way out all the time. It's not always going to be convenient for you to do what you need to do. Man, what a perfect segue to the, the last thing I want to say here. So if, in case you couldn't hear, Greg, what we often do with creation care, and I think this is just an understatement of the century, is we choose convenience over caring about it. 
And related to that is this kind of overwhelming, we can be overwhelmed with this one. We actually can be overwhelmed with any of these areas. But let's just talk about this one since that's what we're finishing up with. You know, the whole, it's not just about, it's about the whole structure of where and how we live, isn't it? I mean, it's not wired that way. It's wired the other way. It's wired out of industrialization and capitalism and convenience and consumerism. Let's be real. People are talking about it now, but it's a giant battle all the time. It's uber politicized. It's become a right-left culture war thing. Um, but there are, there are structural and systemic obstacles we face. Um, that, that might be our economic system is set up Otherwise, for the most part, it could be cultural, kind of a cultural or mental framework, a mental structure. In other words, the, the set of values and habits that we have. You know, I like getting this coffee right here. Uh, the assumptions we make about things, the ways we think, that's part of the structure we inherit too. That's structural. It kind of make not doing creation care, even thinking about that as an area of responsibility or a possibility where we might plant a seed or water one. We might just assume that doing otherwise is, is normal. Well, that's just normal. You, you sound like pine. You sound like such an idealist. This is normal. Because it, it is kind of normal. It's not a good normal, maybe. It's not a very Genesis 1 and 2 normal. It's more of a Genesis 3 normal. Right? It, a lot of it's broken. Um, there's a lot of things that are structural. They're sort of baked in to the world we've created. Not we individually, but over the last you know, couple hundred years, that do make that seem normal. It seems like an uphill, an overwhelmingly uphill battle to do anything about it. Let me ask you this, though. So that's creation care. Let's take it back to, say, Christian ethics and Christian morality. Would we, if we're tempted to go, well, that's just, you can't, it's baked in. You can't do anything about it. It's structural, it's systemic. Do we say that about Christian ethics? Aren't there, aren't, non-Christian ethics baked into, like baked, there's norms and customs toward materialistic covetousness. Isn't that pretty normal? Is anybody listening to me now? Just, <laughs> just look at her, she's really cute. Super cute, all right. Grace is making us late today. She's, Grace will always kill you. I know, she should. And, and I'm glad to have it stolen. Um, no, so think about, move from creation care to like ethics, you know. How big a problem is, is materialism in the sense of covetousness in America? How big a problem is it for Christians? Do you think there are very many Christians you've ever met who aren't on some level because of the norms that we just grow up in, on some level covetous? That's a daily struggle. I mean, I feel guilty, like, kind of all the time about that, and kind of like, well, what do I do about it? Well, I probably could do some more things than I am doing. I, I can't just, what I can't do is just not question it because it's the norm. I don't do that in, in you know, sort of spiritual ethics. Um, so why do I think I can do that with creation care? If it's a legitimate biblical responsibility, if that's part of the ministry of reconciliation, yeah, structurally, it's baked in otherwise, but don't I have to kind of ask questions about how I might fight it? We do that with ethics. What about morality? Aren't immoralities of various sorts baked in? Aren't they structural in our culture and society? Isn't sexuality pretty much messed up 
in the general culture? Isn't it big time broken? Do we go, well, it's, it's, you know, it's just such, it's such a big thing going on now. You can't, there's nothing you can do about it. So, no, we teach our kids fornication is wrong. <laughs> the odds aren't great for, for sexual purity. Because it, it, we're inundated with otherwise. But, like, we still try to make them, you know, look at the, the, the reality and what the challenges are and what the bar is from Jesus. I mean, we... Don't mess up, but we don't go, well, you can't do anything about it. We, we tend to do that with creation care. We don't do it with ethics or morality. What about truth-telling and lying? Do you think our country, do you think our political culture has a problem with lying at all? Do we even know what truth is collectively anymore? We can't even agree on that because it's, we're in this ultimate postmodern moment where you've got these different sides and silos just, just creating facts and like calling out facts and ignoring others and knowingly telling people falsehoods? we got a major truth crisis. Lying is normalized. It's part of the structure of our, of our society. And we don't go, oh, then we can't do anything about it. No, we're called to fight back. And fighting back may look like what Tanya said. Here is one seed in some dirt. Literally, in creation care maybe. But morally, ethically, in every way. Yeah, structurally, everything's always been against us. But we are serving a God who came to earth and died for our sins, who was raised from the dead. So we cannot be people who are cynical in the final analysis. We need to be realistic and, and look at the brokenness. But we also need to, in the light of the crucifixion and resurrection, be people who see possibility. That I can do my little part. God's doing the big thing anyway. And that's what faithfulness is. He never called me to take his place. He, taught, he, he called me to look at hard questions, difficult questions, and bring the story of the Bible to bear on it. And to do it from the Bible out, not culture war or something in our world back in. I guarantee you're going to get the wrong answers if you start doing that, because you got the wrong questions, probably. Get the questions from the Bible, too, not just the answers. All right, that's it. Um, I, appreciate, I appreciate this attempt today to behold the new has come. That's what we're trying to do here in concrete, real ways. We'll, we're going to be chewing on this for the rest of the year, Lord willing, but I do appreciate your efforts today to, to make this kinetic and not just potential. All right. Um, who's, let's see. Lawson's leading, so let's all together stand and sing along with Lawson.